Hey everyone, this is Arnold Bjorn with Warm Welcome, where every Wednesday we meet the makers behind the most beloved restaurants to share their stories, struggles, and success. Today we're chatting with Peter, a 10-year restaurant vet operating multiple concepts within food halls such as Urban Space and Chelsea Market. These concepts include a grapery bar Suzette, Thai street food Bangkok bar, Taiwanese-inspired very fresh noodles. French Vietnamese Bistro La Song, and most recently Ting's Jamaican Jerk Chicken. Peter is a Korean adoptee who grew up in Los Angeles. His parents exposed him early on to various cuisines. He was very active with sports to a point where he had intended to pursue hockey at a professional level. An unfortunate accident soon derailed his. Dreams, but he found another love for cooking and eating. He would travel the world from Europe, Asia, and South America, bartending and cooking along the way to get by. Soon, he found his way back home, cooking professionally at Wolfgang Puck's legendary Spago's restaurant in Beverly Hills. An invite from his best friend and now business partner in NYC to a New Year's party did some strong convincing for Peter to call New York his new home. On this episode, we detail his journey, speak about how he got his start in operating concepts within food markets, as well as uh, the advantages and challenges of operating within these said food halls. To begin, we bring you back to Los Angeles. I was three months old when I first landed in Los Angeles from Korea as an adoptee, and I was going into a French Czechoslovakian American family. We lived about 45 minutes inland from Malibu. It's a suburb called Agora Hills, and from what I can remember, it was a lot of sports, sun, and some curricular, extracurricular fun. I was really passionate about sports, and I spent all my free time trying to master them. Basically, from skateboarding, biking, surfing, soccer, snowboarding, and ice hockey. Were there any like food memories early on? Um, I remember my parents taking me out a lot to eat. You know, they're always they always made it um, a point for us all kinds of to take us out to all different kinds of foods. Growing up, Korean food, Indian food, Thai, Chinese, Middle Eastern, Mexican. My mom would say, "At least try it," you know. And I did for the most part. I mean, I, I was like, yeah. I was like, this is really tasty. I was a hungry kid. What can I say? Playing a lot of sports made you a little hungry. <laughs> I was, it was awesome. I love the excitement of them. I picked up hockey pretty quickly. I decided to dedicate all my time to try to master that. And I got pretty good. So I actually tried to move to Seattle and I tried out at one of the top nationally ranked teams in the United States at the time. No way. Yeah. Uh, I made the team and then I tried to go pro, but the farthest... <laughs> Seriously, but the farthest I ever got was the junior Olympic team. That's still that's still insane. It was an, I was an alternate, so I wasn't like quite there. It was the tryouts, and I was they're like, this kid is the alternate. If someone breaks a leg, then he can come on the team. That's <laughs> how I think it was at the time. Eventually, I caught a really bad break. It was at a Canadian Invitational for scouts to check out new players and whatnot. 
I actually broke my collarbone. I shattered it a few different places. While you were playing hockey? Yeah, it was it was terrible. About two years to heal. So that was the end of that. That that definitely kept you on the sidelines, huh? Yeah, I was done. That must have been really hard for you though, because like at that time, like, you know, making it in hockey was probably your your goal, like your passion at the time. Yeah. So there was like a transition period where I was like, okay, what am I gonna do next? Right. And and within that transition period, like was that restaurants right away or did you dabble in something else too before you got into this industry or? At that time, I was pretty much 24 seven sports all in. I didn't really hang out with friends. I didn't have, I didn't have a normal childhood growing up because it was like, try to be this professional athlete. And to do that, it takes everything, you know, day and night. So after that, I was like, let me just take a break. Let me just relax. Let me hang out with my friends. Let me see what, you know, the, the, the high school prom is about things like that. Normal stuff. Yeah. What, so your, your love for sports, was that, was that you putting your pressure on yourself or did your family, like your parents, did they kind of force it on you uh, or anything like that? Or no, my, my family's pretty relaxed, you know, very easygoing. So yeah, super chill. Um, all the pressure and all that stuff is definitely self-inflicted. How did you, so how did you turn, how did you get into the restaurant industry? I know I've always loved food, mostly love to eat. Like I said, I'm a, I'm a hungry kid. Almost every job since the age of 14 has been in the restaurant. At 18, I took off traveling the world for a bit with sometimes little to no money, just enough for like a plane ticket or something. Like backpacking around. Yeah. Or with like a few nights stay and a little bit of food money. But So the only job I could land with no papers was in the restaurant industry. So I bartended and cooked like all over Europe, Asia, South America. And at some point my mom was like, you, you know, you should go to school. I'm like, so I applied at the university of Washington school of business. I got accepted. And then my mom said, I think you need a job. So I got one opening as a prep cook at a hotel. And at that point, my passion for the restaurant industry really grew. I often find myself like in school sketching out restaurant designs and dreaming up menus. By the time I graduated, I, I held the chef de cuisine title. And from there, I did some stints in some James Beard recognized restaurants and finally landed in Los Angeles, back in LA, at the two Michelin starred Spagos in Beverly Hills. Wow, I didn't know you worked at Spagos. <laughs> yeah. That's nuts, man. Yeah, it was crazy. How was that experience like working there? Very intense. You know, you go in and, and just prep everything. There's like, I don't know, I feel like 30 cooks just going crazy doing the same stuff. And they're all super, you know, competitive. They're from all over the place. They're from Japan, France, Italy. Everyone's like trying to like be the best they can be. It's basically like hockey tryouts all over again. I'm, I'm really curious to see how you went from working at Spagos to opening and correct me if I'm wrong, cause you have a few concepts, but your first concept that you, you brought over was Bar Suzette, right? Right. How did you, how did you go from Spagos to Bar Suzette? I'm just really curious as to see how you made that transition. Well, you know, I've always craved some type of experience, whether it's living by an ocean or in the mountains or, or abroad in a big city. When my best friend called me up and he invited me out to his New Year's party in New York, I was like, well, why not? So I packed up, I headed out, and, and I had a super blast. The party, I partied with him and some friends like nonstop for a week. <laughs> <laughs> it 
so before the week was done, I told him, oh, I'm moving out here. New York is the best. So I came back and actually my best friend, his name's Troy Lugar. He's also my business partner in Bar Suzette. So we collaborated on the concept and he presented for a small creper in New York. Initially, he presented it as an after hours crepe spot and thought PM Suzette was a good fit. But once we agreed and we decided to move forward, you know, we applied for a spot in Madison Square Eats. And considering this was like a daytime venture in a market, it didn't feel quite right. So we just settled on Suzette. At the time. At the time. Yeah. Basically, when you hear Suzette, your mind goes to crepes, you know? So after our first successful market where we serve, let's see, crepes, palm frites, uh, wine and beer. Yeah. We noticed that the customers would just end up sitting by the bar all night, just watching us cook. And chatting us up. And we felt like bartenders who were also cooking. We eventually changed the name to Bar Suzette. Mm, because because of the, the, the guest feedback and the response you got initially. That was the vibe. So, so for our next market, the Union Holiday Square Market. Yeah. The name really stuck. And it was pretty fitting for what we wanted to become. You know, some were fun, some were casual, some were friendly. Um, the name Suzette actually is in reference to the first crepe Suzette made in history, which was a historical accident of spilling of some type of cordial and set on fire. It was like our business plan gone right, you know? I feel like when you, because I've, you know, I've been in New York since 2013, and I think you were probably one of the first like crepe focus niche, like just specialty shop, right? If I'm not mistaken. At the time, there wasn't too many around. I think there was like, I think there was like two or three, maybe. Maybe, yeah. And then we hit and it was just like an explosion of creperies. Always a little bit ahead of the time, I guess. So you did the whole the holiday markets and, and, and with urban space and whatnot. And did you, how did you end up with Chelsea Market as like a final destination for that concept? When urban space announced their first like food market ever, Madison Square Eats, uh, which our concept was accepted. Basically, neither of us had previous knowledge on how to make any proper street style crepes. So we bought the burner and brought it to Troy's apartment where we practiced up until the day of opening. And on the first day, we got super slammed by a mob of people, about 30 people deep from open to close. And at the end of the shift, I was like looking at him like, wow, man, we were busy. What are we going to do? And I think the response was something like, we got to buy another crepe burner. So from that point on, we were super busy all the way until the last day. You know, I remember finishing off the market and doing the holiday sway market where we picked up some, a lot of friends and followers actually. And this was before Instagram, you know? So I think these people just wanted to like hang out with us, like literally. It was a it was a pretty cool spectacle. So you know, it was an open kitchen on the street, good music, farm fresh ingredients, great vibes. So to answer your question, <laughs> like we had all the energy and we were super excited and cooking and pouring drinks for the people. I think one of our customers actually emailed the Chelsea Market creative director at the time, and basically told them in the email saying, "You guys need to have this crepery in your market." You know, looking back, it's honestly amazing that the director even 
saw and opened that email, let alone read it, you know, considering how many emails they receive a day. Soon after the, the end of Holiday Square Market, we got a call and we to go in and view the space just to see it, to see if it would fit. And it seemed like a perfect fit. So after Troy and I returned from a celebratory trip to the Cayman Islands in Cuba, we built the space and opened it on 420. 10 2010 dude so it's been around for it's, it's been around for 10 years huh that's always like a, a a goal for new york if you can make it 10 years in the new york industry in the new york city that's a big anniversary industry. big anniversary yeah. congrats man just made it just before this whole thing went down but <laughs> but at, at the time i believe that we were like the busiest place in the chelsea market per square foot so we were making more than, than everybody per square foot until the opening of Los Tacos number one. And that was like a few years later. Yeah, they, they definitely caused the scene. But I mean, hey, you, you came right back at them with uh, very fresh doodles, which I would love to talk about at some point too. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's a crazy story. I mean, it kind of, kind of goes to show you that like, as long as you've kind of focused on the product and you know, your guests in front of you, like kind of the rest of it kind of works itself out almost like the, you know, you, you took care of a guest and the guest had a great experience and they actually did the due diligence of like pitching for you guys at Chelsea market. I mean, that's, that's an insane story. Well, I, f- I feel, and I find with New York, like it's so many people from all different walks of life. There is some group of people that will support your cause one way or another, you know, <laughs> that, and that's really cool about New York. I mean, given, given the success of like Bar Suzette when you opened in Chelsea Market and you said you had like the best sales per square footage. I mean, I, I guess now it makes sense as to why you have so many concepts in there. I mean, did that make it easier for you to pitch your, your next concept within the market? Yeah. I mean, building that trust, the repertoire and the success rate to see like, oh my God, like how do these people make this crepery? Like we haven't even heard of crepes before, <laughs> you know? And it's not even like a New York thing. It's like a Parisian thing. So we had the the trust at that point in time. Yeah. I, I do want to talk about challenges and advantages with like running markets. But before that, for people that are listening, they, they don't know your work. Could you briefly explain um, the concepts you have and maybe like a rough opening date of each just so we have a good timeline of them? We first open up Bar Suzette. Yeah. Let that run for a little bit. And then... I moved on and opened up Bangkok bar and that started in the urban space markets after Bangkok bar. There was very fresh noodles after very fresh noodles. There was Lasong, and after Lasong, there was Ting's Jamaican jerk chicken. Uh, some challenges or advantages that may come with operating stores within like a food hall or food market. Since you have a lot of experience in that Chelsea market is, is a really great place to operate. You know, it's located Next to the High Line, Hudson River, Meatpacking District. It's great and it only has gotten better with the completion of the High Line. The, the beautiful historical building is an attention grabber itself. It's also home to Food Network, YouTube, Google, Bravo, and Channel One. So you get office traffic from foodie-minded professionals. Um, it houses some of the best food vendors in the city, which attracts are very diverse around the 20 to 30,000 customers a day and up to, or it did and up to 50,000 on the weekends. That's so wild. 
yeah, it gives you exposure that you would never get anywhere else. It's, it's a great for business. So if you have a good concept, a good product, the success rates are very high. Some of the challenges that you could experience, I think, are literally being realized right now. Most noticeably, the absence of tourists and office workers, both result of the pandemic. This is it's like the perfect bubble is proven to be capable of popping, you know? So right now we're completely reliant on all the local population heading all the way on the West side. Isn't something that all New Yorkers are willing to do unless of course you sell the best crepes or noodles, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It seems like it's, it's just so unfortunate because prior to this, like you had such a great, clientele that was built in like obviously in the building already and then you have people like traveling from all over the world to go there right and these these people like probably like 70 percent 80 percent of the clientele um so i mean that's that's an interesting point and, and you know we'll see we'll see how it kind of unfolds but um the other thing i feel like people would be curious about is what are what are the usual arrangements for running a stall, say like in, you know, with urban space, like what are the arrangements usually? You need an original concept. Uh, Since they try not to develop or overlap any food items, you also need a product that can be produced at a very rapid pace and be cost efficient because urban space markets are extremely expensive to operate within. All the contracts are short term. When you were in, when when we were involved, you you know so you had to you had to know you would make your money back. It's, it's honestly it's pretty risky, to say the least. But you can get great exposure and practice because of the high traffic areas that they do focus on. The the next thing I wanted to talk about is I, we talked a little bit about this off air and in kind of how you're operating all these different concepts, but not many not many people can claim to operate you know, a creperie, a French bistro, Thai restaurant, noodle shop. And I think now you said a Jamaican restaurant too. So walk us <laughs> yeah. through what your usual steps are in launching a concept. Cause you know, I'm sure a lot of traveling and firsthand experiences play a part. The aim is to help give Asian and minority culture a platform in America. And it's a good starting point for others to understand a different perspective, different attitudes and different beliefs because you know, we're all open to enjoying a good meal mm. and food has that power to help bridge some cultural divides. You gain some perspective as well as when you see something, you're feeling it and tasting new things from different places that will always help, you know, help strengthen your palate and understanding of, you know, I think what's needed and what's wanted for me, first, I naturally approach all things from a chef's perspective because that's how I've been introduced to the industry. So I ask a lot of questions like, will people like this taste, texture, aroma and style of the food? Is it needed? Um, is there a void in the market for the concept? Or could it be done better or differently? You know, um, Logistically, what can actually be done in the space? What is possible? Is there opportunity to pull this idea off? You know, does it work financially? What does the branding look like? 
what is the time frame and scope of the project? Um, how long does it all need to come together? And who's involved? You know, I don't, I don't work alone and it definitely wouldn't be as fun. And in the restaurant industry, the business, it's almost impossible to do much of anything alone. You know, it takes many dedicated, skilled, and talented individuals to accomplish what we do. You know, at this point in time, I have a track record of working with people that are very close to me, have worked with me for a long time, or have known me personally for a long time. So it's definitely a friends and family type relationship and helping others get the same opportunity that was given to me, you know, sharing those same successful experiences together with people that I care about has always been important. You know, if one of us comes up, we all come up. And luckily for me, you know, most of the people I've known are also industry trained chefs and professional operators in their own right. So we collaborate and we help create these growing, living, evolving restaurants, you know? So I, I want to highlight some of the partnerships that make it all work by saying, you know, there would be no Bar Suzette without Troy or no very fresh noodles without Victor, no Ting's Jamaican jerk chicken without Sean, no Bangkok bar without Juanisa and Natalie, and no La Song without Olivier and Maurice. You know, this is what it takes to make it work. It's all about teamwork. And anybody that tells you otherwise is doing basically a disservice to many people needed to make any restaurant work. Yeah, I love that. And th- thanks for highlighting, you know, your collaborators there too, because I think it's important that we we know of that and that their names are highlighted. I, I do want to dig a little deep into very fresh noodles because I think, you know, it's one of the more you know recent successful concerts that you've launched. But uh, bring us back to 2016 because the locations you have now in the market is actually not your original location. Your original location, I believe, was much smaller. It was like 90 square feet. Um, so tell me a little about how the concept came together. Uh, I read that you were even in Taiwan for six months for, for a little trip there. Um, so love to hear a little bit about more like the behind the scenes. Um, yeah, I was, I was in Taiwan. I was fresh out of high school teaching English at some summer school camps all over the country from Taipei, Taichung, Tainan, just to name a few. And in all the places, I found myself eating and loving that Taiwanese beef noodle soup. (laughs) It was my first dish I had when I landed and my last dish I had before I left. So even after the trip, the the dish stuck in my mind. And fast forward many years later, being in New York, experienced with the Chelsea market and cultivating successful track record, I haven't seen still that many beef noodle soup shops and or hand-pulled noodle shops where you can actually see the chefs hand-pulling the noodles in around Chelsea. So, you know, I knew, I knew this could work out concept-wise after getting the landlord's approval, which you always have to do. Um, I knew from Bar Suzette that culinary theatrics can play a big role in selling in Chelsea market. So the hand-pulled noodle concept was, I knew it was going to be perfect. So I called a meeting with Victor Huang, uh, my partner, with a concept space and some flavor profiles in mind and asked him if he'd be interested in working together to make a hand-pulled noodle shop. 
in Chelsea Market. So we discussed design, direction, and flavors together. And so from there, Victor started to put the work in the kitchen to develop some of the menu items with really amazing results to help form our humble but amazing handful noodle shop into what it is today. The the other thing I do want to highlight though is Victor was actually part of your Bar Suzette team, right? Initially. Yeah. And you gave him, I think this is really amazing though, that you as a business owner gave him this opportunity to to partner up and you know gave him some ownership in the project. I mean, yeah, Victor did work with us at Bar Suzette, and this is where we, we met. And I saw his passion and skill in the kitchen. And he has a lot to offer. He actually brought the name to me and was like, you know, this this name is so good. I was it was like, I was like, it's it was like an instant yes. It's like so perfect. It's very direct. And it plays on that, you know, those some of the places in Chinatown whose names are very matter of fact, you know. For people that haven't experienced that restaurant, one thing I liked when I personally went was how simplified and streamlined the menu was because one of the things that's frustrating to me personally is like when I go to a restaurant and they give me a menu, like, I mean, you know, a lot of chain restaurants are like this, like Applebee's and Cheesecake Factory, like they have just like everything there. I actually like it when I only have to choose from three, four things. Um, I'm assuming that was probably intentional, right? To streamline your operation. Yeah. Um, the limited choices have been deliberate and we have discussed, you know, so many variations and directions, but from an operational standpoint in regards to production, food cost branding, the noodles and, you know, the sides are just like perfect together and we can excel at those few items. A lot of times I feel like restaurants kind of try to overcompensate by trying to offer so many variety of options, but there's just no way that you can do every single type of item with that as much, good as you possibly can yeah with that much intent and care right so i think that was a good move for, on your part just to like specialize on a couple dishes that you guys know you can master and efficiently put put out you know within a matter of minutes because you guys are that's how you get the quality yeah the one thing i noticed though with very fresh noodles or even you mentioned you mentioned um you know those ta- los tacos too um i see i saw the market with especially Los and, and your concept, I, f- I feel like the market is trying to attract more New York City locals in addition to the tourist crowd. Is, is, that, is that right? Because that's like my perception is they're trying to bring more locals into the market. You know, 100%. And right now, locals are so important. They, they are the community support that is needed to help all restaurants, all neighborhood restaurants keep going. Um, right now, like basically without their support, we don't really have our restaurants period. Uh, and, and just a question I like to ask everybody recently that have been on the show was what was business like leading up to COVID-19 business was, you know, it's, it's slowed down and we noticed it across the board in all the restaurants. And that was pretty much you know, how it went. Cause especially for you, you know, operating in, as we've, as we've kind of conversed, it's a tourist friendly market, you know? And so how, I guess my question is how has this obviously affected your business, but also what have you done to try and pivot as well? Chelsea market is so diverse and we're exposed to all that. So it has different effects, you know, with each business because 
some are actually geared towards Europeans, for example, like La Song. We started as a, a French bistro and now we've made a pivot to French Vietnamese. And the, the move and efforts have really helped the staff who have not received any benefits thus far or any aid from the government or the states. And that's honestly the, like right now, the most important point. But it has actually also helped us lower food costs, labor costs, and shifted the style to, I think now, that are more geared towards the locals as well. So we'll see how it goes. I mean, what is your personal outlook on the industry and in particular the, the food market or food hall sector? Got to stay positive. <laughs> I mean, I believe things will come back eventually. You know, key points are vaccine, economic recovery time, but, you know, which is, you know, perhaps the most challenging while demand and supply work itself out. I think successful food halls will come back as the economy does, especially if they really serve and provide for a community, you know, that needs them. And the restaurants that inhabit them will rebound, but it will take some time. You know, we have to be like a family committed to sticking this thing out together, really. And lastly, I just want to give you some time to, to share some thoughts on how listeners can support your restaurants. Cause uh, I know Bangkok bar actually moved out to industry city, right? Uh, and so if you could share with us maybe uh, which restaurants are open, uh, what they, you know, where they are, what they provide, like takeout or delivery and, and which restaurants are maybe open for outdoor do- dining as well. Cause I know, I think the song was open for outdoor dining as well. So um, I'd love to give you, I'd love to give you this time to maybe share, uh, you know, an updates about your restaurants currently. Yeah. Bangkok bar is at industry city. It's open for delivery and takeout and it has a little out, side dinings area as as well as the song at chelsea market it's open for delivery takeout and it has an outdoor dining program um ting's jamaican jerk chicken is open for delivery and takeout and so is very fresh noodles thanks so much for your your time today and um really wish you all the best as well with your restaurants and uh it was really getting nice to get to know um what you do in all the restaurants that you operate. I appreciate the, the opportunity and the reach out. Thank you, man. Thanks again, Peter, for being on the show. Um, quick thank you and shout out to Emily, who recommended me to reach out to Peter. Uh, I hope you're doing well and staying safe. Last week, during my closing comments, I shared a bit about being empathetic and understanding uh, during your outdoor dining experiences. This past July 6th, uh, NYC opened for phase three. Originally indoor dining at restaurants would have been included, but after various conversation with foodies and friends who frequent restaurants and also operators, it seems best for now to delay this until there is further clarification and understanding of you know operating a restaurant safely during these times. Uh, it's still a very frustrating process for many operators, so uh, honestly, my heart goes out to them. Uh, yesterday, at with Warm Welcome, we opened our online shop where you can now purchase photograph prints and illustrations. You know, we believe that there is still uh, there still isn't much justice or action being taken in response to a lot of the social injustice unfolding in front of us. 
Um, so we're hoping to do our part. So we asked our collaborating artists to choose a respective organization that they want to support and want to benefit. And so the way it works is 50% of all purchases uh, from a specific artist will go to this organization. And then the other 50% will go straightly to benefiting uh, the artist. So uh, I hope you can support this cause as well, if possible. Um, items are available now for purchase at withwarmwalka.com slash shop. As always, this has been Arnold with Warm Welcome. And uh, thank you for tuning in. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast and send it forward to someone you think would be interested in our stories of Asian Americans, immigrants, and restaurant entrepreneurship. See you next Wednesday.